Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Kate Moody, Strategy Director here at 11FS. In this episode, we are discussing the great wealth transfer. As baby boomers pass on an estimated $84 trillion of wealth, we discuss how the products and services to support millennials will differ, how this may impact established wealth management institutions, and ask how will this change the wealth management landscape in the future. We are going to take stock of where the industry currently is and how well equipped, or not, it is to deal with the challenges that lie ahead. We will also discuss some of the broader trends in this space to understand what needs to be done and how. To do this, as always, I'm joined by a panel of incredible guests who are experts in this space. So firstly, a big hello to Dan Hegarty, founder and CEO at Communion. Welcome back to the show, Dan. Obviously, regular listeners might remember you as CEO and founder of Habito. So please do reintroduce yourself and talk us through what you're focusing on now. Thank you, Kate. It's lovely to be here. Um, yes, so I'm Dan. I spent the last... Uh, nine years of my career in the mortgage death hole uh, at Habito, trying to make that a less painful um, and awkward part of people's financial lives. Um, And more recently, uh, for the last year, I've been working on a new business called Communion, um, aimed at trying to help particularly uh, sort of the 25 to 40 year old figure out uh, how not to die poor. Awesome. As someone who sits in that bracket, I definitely am intrigued to hear hear your take on things. So thanks for joining us. We are also delighted to welcome Antoinette Rodriguez, who is president at Marfa Advisors and chairwoman at Financial Advisor Magazine's Invest in Women. Antoinette, thank you very much for, for joining us. Um, again, for our listeners' sake, please could you give us a bit of an intro to yourself and um, where you focus your time, please? Sure. As you mentioned, I am the CEO and president of Marfi Advisors, which is a coaching firm for wealth managers on Wall Street for the last 20 somewhat years. I'm also a former financial advisor for Merrill Lynch uh, at the then world headquarters in downtown New York and uh, the chairwoman of financial advisor magazine's Invest in Women initiative, which is actually to the heart of what we're, we'll be discussing today, which is taking the, the demographic shift in the wealth transfer that's going to be uh, moving primarily not just to younger generation, but specifically to women. So I'm the chairwoman of that initiative, and we have a, uh, a global conference actually that's, that's going to be uh, happening in March in, um, in, in Florida. I'm also personally, the things I'm most proud of, I'm a uh, 9-11 uh, breast cancer survivor and the mother of a uh, college freshman, a girl tiger that I'm very proud of and I dropped off recently to college. Awesome. Well, what a great CV. So, I mean, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I'm very excited to pick both your brains on this topic. So let's dive in. Um, I guess it would probably make most sense to start by looking at exactly what we mean by the great wealth transfer. You know, why is it such a big deal and what we think kind of the overall economic impact might be. Um, Antoinette, maybe I'll start with you. Tell us a bit more. What is it and, and why should people care about it? Well, the great wealth transfer, and it depends on how you look at it, right? In the United States, we tend to be pretty singular, and we think that <laughs> we're the center of the universe, that only things apply to us. But the reality is, because of the size of our economy, the, the great wealth transfer is actually the largest amount will occur here. Uh, if you believe the numbers, as I think for the United States, it's $68 trillion. So if you if you talked about, you know, the $84 trillion we were discussing earlier, globally, $68 trillion would be in the United States alone. So what that means, 
means is that the uh, baby boomers, those people that right after World War II, who bought those really inexpensive houses and had all the appreciation of what happened in the stock market, will be transferring their wealth and actually are already transferring their wealth to the next generation, Gen X, Gen Y, depending if you use the term millennial, and specifically to a group of um, young people who have had some rather major demographic shifts and seismic uh, political things have happened and economic uh, concerns. So that's that's really what we're talking about, the transfer from that baby boomer generation over to the other two. What an awesome definition to start us off. Um, Dan, what does the great wealth transfer mean for, for you guys and how you're looking at it at Communion? Yeah, so I guess... We, I mean, so obviously the U, the UK mirrors at a small scale what, what's occurring in the US, and and I think I think I think it's probably universally agreed that that transfer has begun, right? Um, but obviously the sort of the the elongation of of demography, like essentially people getting older and inheritance coming coming later, I think has really changed the landscape of the the implications for those those inheriting. Um, so a communion, we we have a slightly different bent on things, and we are a lot less focused sort of ironically, I guess, on the money side of things um, and have this sort of a, a fundamental belief that most of the causes of, of financial instability are actually related to emotions. So we don't believe that people are anxious because they don't have enough money. We believe they don't have enough money because they're anxious. Um, and that leads them to avoidant behaviors or impulse spending or, or other kind of sort of psychological hurdles that sort of keep them away from from leading a happy and healthy financial life. But I should say, so, you know, for, for our kind of core customer base, they may be probably on average 30 or 40 years away from an inheritance. So they're probably, which I think has, is sort of fraught with its own danger because suddenly it's this, uh, this big big payday that's coming a long way in the future, which means maybe you don't need to save today. But inheritance, like any, any financial instrument in the future, uh, is uncertain. And I think we, we certainly would encourage our, our customers to make sure they're taking some preventative steps just in case that inheritance isn't everything they hope due to you know, later life healthcare requirements or a housing market crash or any of the other sort of unforeseeable black swans that can, can lie in the path of all of us. And Antoinette, like, do you think this this wealth transfer is is a positive thing? Like, is it going to have a positive impact on the economy, or is it is it more nuanced than that? Yeah, the, the the famous it depends. It, it depends on uh, just as Daniel just touched on the emotional aspect of it. If you consider who is going to be receiving the bulk of the uh, wealth transfer, and I've just been speaking to my eighteen year old daughter, and of course, you know, she's idealistic on many fronts, so. As you get older, your perspective of money becomes more conservative. So the hope is, as these younger people get older, and, and to Daniel's point about not, you know, having these financial principles or learning them before you get the sudden wealth. So going back to that, and I guess tagging on to this, the positive effect will be it depends on the demographic group and what their values are. So the younger generation, uh, thank God, is, is a little bit more concerned about climate change and uh, even some societally positive initiatives uh, demographically diverse. So I believe it can have a positive effect, provided that we don't let, and I mean, Elon is going to blame me if he hears this, but if we don't let the billionaires take it all, right? So if, if, you, if you get all these people, all these young people inheriting the money and then give it away or, or hand it off to someone that, you know, a cryptocurrency scheme, you're going to have a problem. So <laughs> any good you could have done with it is, is gone because of, quite frankly, uh, to Daniel's point, emotion. Yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting challenge. Sorry, Daniel, we can add something. 
Yeah, the only thing I was going to say is I, 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 had a, I did a bit of homework last night just so I understood the numbers. And the, one of the numbers that really leapt out at me, and these are, these are British numbers, so they might not tally exactly with the US, was that yeah, the, the, the average age of inheritance would be 64 uh, for a millennial. So it's pretty late. So you're kind of through the like, well, we won't buy a house. We've probably paid your college fees, you know, the college fees for your kids if you choose to have them at that point. So really, like, it's really coming at the tail end. But also, I think quite and, and, you know, this kind of conversation always, we're always going to be talking in generalities. Um, but given that sort of wealth inequality is only increasing over time, um, the one stat that leapt out to me was that one in five millennials would inherit less than £10,000. Um, so you've got 20% of the population who are going to enjoy absolutely none of that of that wealth transfer. And in fact, the concentration of, of those who will enjoy it is, is getting ever ever more concentrated. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think sort of societally, I think there are, there's a whole second order of, uh, of um, ramifications to more money being concentrated in fewer hands, and possibly those who are sort of on the wrong side of that having to, you know, run even faster from an earlier age to make sure that they're set up for the retirement that they, they would hope for. Yeah, and I think it's a really interesting change. I suppose one I'd love to get your perspective on internet from a sort of financial advisor's perspective is, you know, we know that one of the main drivers of sort of being financially successful over the long term is being able to sort of start investing early to you know, use the benefits of compounding and actually kind of the scenario that Daniel has laid out is you know, yes there will be this transfer of wealth but it's not going to arrive until you're right towards that tail end of your financial life so yeah what impact do we think this is having the fact that people are so much more financially constrained in their younger parts of their lives and have this sort of uncertainty about amounts that they may or may not inherit further down the line. Like how difficult does that make it, Antoinette, for like a financial advisor who's sat down with a 30-year-old today trying to help them plan ahead? Now, it could be because I'm dealing with a different demographic, but our groups are inheriting the money a bit earlier. And the reason is because the age at which those parents have the kids are a little bit later right? So if you are, let's say, like I had my daughter almost 40, so whatever quote-unquote wealth she gets, it won't really be that long into her adult life because I had her when I was 40. And also um, when people actually accumulate the wealth. So you accumulate the wealth at a certain point, right? Usually you're like 60s or 70s. And it all, again, depends on what age you had the children. And also, if you're talking about a mass affluent group or if you're talking about the real money, the real money is going to be a little bit earlier. And also not just because of when the parents die or become uh, mentally unable to manage the money, but because wealthy parents are very purposeful about how they're going to transfer the money. And they're generally going to do a lot of it during their lifetime. So those kids will be younger. But that's not the people that are going to be inheriting the 10,000 uh, or 10,000 10, pounds. These are people that are going to be inheriting uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions. No, that's a really interesting one. And I suppose um, similar to like Dan, in terms of like doing homework, you know, like tons and tons of stats in this space. But one of the ones which I found interesting was you know, around the differences in home ownership, which I'm sure we've talked about on lots of different shows here. But, you know, the experience of um, that baby boomer generation, I think some of the stats show that, you know, 62% of them had become homeowners by the time they were 35, where, you know, that's 49% homeownership amongst millennials at the same sort of age. So how, and I've seen that play through in my own, my own life, you know, like my parents talk about buying their first house in their 20s, and I've only just bought my first house now. Um, so how have you, I'm intrigued, especially given your experience of Habitat before communion, like how big a fact is this shift in home ownership patterns? How is that impacting, I suppose, the overall financial trajectory of the kind of millennial generation? 
Well, and listen, I think it's incredibly complicated on, on two fronts. So I think just on the, the emotional, I mean, this is a little bit of a bugbear of mine is that I'm going to be, I'm probably going to offend someone, but just every boomer that I speak to likes to tell me what a genius they were for investing in the property market. And you're like, were you? Like, is that the, was that a big plan? Did you, oh, you saw that coming, did you? Oh, it's very impressive. <laughs> so, whereas I sort of see them a little bit more as, as lottery winners. Um, and so a, a, little, a little less impressed with their investment acumen than perhaps they are. So I think that's number one. And, and I think it's funny. So, you know, we're sort of early stages of communion. So obviously we've been thinking about, I'm sure all the stuff that Antoinette is much more expert than I am. So like calculators and projections and Monte Carlo simulations. Like what's the best way to allow someone at 30 to map the future? And it's funny, you like you do all the calculations and you work out the compound interest curve. And then the the big unknown in it tends to be the inheritance. Um, and that is an incredibly complex topic because, you know, I find that personally and, and certainly in, in, amongst my friends, like that is a question and a discussion that really never comes up in families for a bunch of reasons. And, and I, I would say maybe it's a little different in the 1% where there's like, you know, real like intergenerational wealth transfer and estate planning. But I guess sort of in the, in the middle, middle of the bell curve, perhaps. Um, because as soon as you put a number on it, I think, um, that really puts a lot of pressure on the parents who are suddenly now like, well, so now their spending is being scrutinized by the child because <laughs> you're like, oh, hold on, that, that looks like a nice cruise you're going on. Well, I guess that's coming straight out of the pot. So I think straight away there's like a real uh, kind of interpersonal tension that comes around this. And so in almost every uh, sort of interrogation of this that I've had with, with, with customers and friends, um, nobody knows what they're going to inherit. They really don't know what the number is, and they certainly would, would feel pretty uncomfortable asking. So trying to plan a life around this sort of one huge hole, you know, if you like, in the spreadsheet, I think is really, is really complex and I think can work both ways. I think it can be problematic if you assume it's a big number and you don't, you know, preserve enough wealth. Um, and I think it can be problematic if you uh, assume that it's going to be nothing and actually then, you know, sort of miss out on some of the better opportunities you might have in your 20s and 30s because you're so desperately trying to scramble to make sure you have enough money uh, towards the end. But to speak to you, just to answer your question specifically about the first time, um, uh, first time buyer space in the UK, that's only going to get worse. So, you know, obviously we've just gone through a decade of, you know, near zero interest rates. It looks like we're not going back there anytime soon, which puts more pressure, pressure on the affordability calculations as first time buyers try to buy. So, you know, one of the sort of, again, the sort of second derivatives of the great wealth transfer is we're going to, I guess, a lot of properties are going to get sold over the next 20 years and subdivided between siblings and so on. So maybe an optimistic view is that that might sort of tamp the rising house prices a little bit and offer the opportunity for that that liquidity to be recycled into the purchase of, of smaller apartments. Um, but I, I, I have to say, I think the, the picture looks pretty pretty bleak for the time being. Um, and certainly, you know, with the average, I think now the average UK, sorry, London house prices crossed half a million pounds. So you need an average, you know, maybe 50, 55,000 pounds to get that transaction done. That's, a, that's an awful lot to be saving, you know, at 50 pounds a month. Um, so yeah, yeah, a, a real a steep mountain to climb. Antoinette, do you, do you share this similar sort of bleak picture or do you see it? How, how do you, how do kind of the advisors that you you work with, how do they, how they try to tackle this hole in the spreadsheet? Well, remember, I'm in New York City, so the numbers are astronomically different. <laughs> so in the, in the neighborhood that I live in, if you want to buy a house, I can look outside the window right now at one of these townhouses, they start about five, six million dollars. So if, if you wanted to get a house proper, generally we're talking about people buying apartments, if that. And I always wonder, 
when I look at what people make, and, you know, again, living in New York City, if you're a dual-income household and you're an educated couple, you're going to make a decent amount of money just because if you didn't, you wouldn't live here. But the question of home ownership, I think that whole paradigm will have to be, will have to shift. And it might have shifted already based on the pandemic, which is, you know, what is the store of value of home? So if that is going to be what you're counting on your net worth to be based on, then clearly you're going to focus on that metric. But if you look at it from the Wall Street perspective, Wall Street considers that money makes money. A stored money in, in, in a house, although, you know, to be honest, obviously real estate is, is a very big uh, driver of wealth, but the way you make money on Wall Street is not through house ownership unless you're, you know, real estate investment trust, right? So as far as what the cost, yes, it's completely, no, they're not geniuses. They bought their houses for hundred dollars after the uh, World War. And of course, we've had this demographic shift where, you know, now you have these dual income households. And so the question is, what is it that caused those houses to have those inflated prices, right? Part of it is the dual income household and, you know, a host of other reasons. So I think that if we, like my daughter, she's 18 years old, she already has, again, because of my background, I had her do these mommy boot camp exercises when she was very little and she'll probably end up in therapy over it. But I, I taught her all about the stock market, all about home ownership, all about how taxes work. So she headed off to college with an investment account, with her credit card account. But I never said to her, you should buy a house, I said to her, you should use the, the advantage of your age at 18 that you have the one thing that is the greatest driver of wealth is that time value of money. My undergrad is in finance degree. So I think if it were me, and I, you know, I am a mother of a teenager, I would be telling young people to not get all concerned about that. It's like wishing, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda on a lot of things. It's just not going to happen. So these are the numbers. And it's not like the numbers are going to get so so suddenly uh, low because so many people want to live in these prime areas like the Bay Area and London and New York. So that's my my opinion about it. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. So you know, would a financial advisor, I, I have not got a financial advisor for full, full disclosure. My parents have said like, you should get a financial advisor. But like, if, if you, if I was to sit down with a financial advisor today, like, how do you think, I'm, I'm keen to understand, or to, before we move into thinking about the future, like, what do we think the status quo is now for the financial advice that these millennials are receiving? Like, is it, if we're being honest, like, is it, is it actually helping them? Is it, is it good enough? Well, I mean, it's, it's really very simple. Wall Street works on money. So it all depends how much money you have or who, what part of the household you are. So if your parents and your grandparents uh, have money, then they are likely to give you a certain level of service, uh, a financial advisor. And again, I only deal with multi-million dollar producers, which means that they manage at least $100 million plus in, um, in assets. And where, where Wall Street is very interested in the millennials is in this great wealth transfer because they understand that while this person might be 20-somewhat years old, 30-somewhat years old, they have a, a job that earns them a certain amount of money, that very soon they are going to be either inheriting the wealth, and it's not just about when you actually inherit the wealth, but you do, do you direct the wealth? Because as the older people start to have mental decline or uncertainty, or like, for example, the great wealth transfer to women, where women, older women might have had the, the man in their life manage the money, and when that man dies, and it is generally the male that goes first, um, that woman is left with her children. 
and she will many times rely on the children to give her advice as to what to do. And those children then suddenly have an outsized influence on the wealth, not just for their own inheritance, but as as Daniel said earlier, where the kids are going, well, you know, you're going on a cruise, you, you're eating up my inheritance. But they have a very, a very big room, a uh, place at the table right now. And where Wall Street has it wrong, and part of, you know, I, I've done, I have a whole thing called the Million Dollar Advisor Academy. And one of the courses is exactly about that, how to talk to women, how to talk to the millennials. Not necessarily because you think that they have amassed so much wealth that you could make a commission off of it, but the fact that they are going to be influencing and not just their parents, they're also going to be influencing the pension decisions at their at their firms, for example. The health care, uh, the health insurance that happens at the firm. So so what what younger people have, the biggest the biggest power that younger people have right now is the power of influence on everything that's coming down the pike. That's my opinion. Yeah. Um and Dan, I'm guessing you wouldn't be starting communion if you didn't see there as being a problem with the status quo, right? So what's your assessment of the financial advice and guidance that these millennials are receiving today? Yeah, so, so I, th- I think generally Antoinette and I aim at different demographies. Um, so, so generally the, the, the problem, I think the problem we're trying to solve is different and therefore the, the sort of the, the people we're interacting with each day. Um, but no, I'm, I'm uh, we're, you know, the, the people that we spend our time with, 60% of them have 100% of their savings in their current account. So they're earning absolutely zero interest, um, which is obviously just on the face of it completely irrational before before anything. Um, and, and the conversations that we have again and again are, you know, the, the the idea of a future self or a future life is almost like completely indecipherable to, to a 25-year-old. Maybe maybe they can think five years into the future about like wanting to buy a home. Um, but the idea of like trying to imagine yourself at 65, you know, I'm in my early 40s and I still can't really conceive of myself as any older than I am today. Um, so that, that that's the main issue. And so what we find is that it actually, it's incredibly simplistic, the conversation that we need to have, but it's really, really difficult to live, to, to live up to. So Number one, you got to spend less than you earn, um, which again, very, very simple advice, very, very hard to do when you're constantly bombarded by, you know, you want to go to Ibiza with your friends or Instagrams telling you to buy this and you'll have this hair or whatever else. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of the work we do is based around just trying to sort of affect that identity change, um, that you are not sort of at the mercy of, uh, of, you know, of the world, but instead you are a saver. And each time, so we save a pound a day together the whole, the whole of the uh, the, the uh, customer base of communion and we see it as like an act of, of defiance if you like against like the kind of the constant pressure to spend so that's how we start and then where we go from there is very very con- conservative so I, I personally think that civilians as I think of them like shouldn't be stock picking um, at all I don't think that makes sense um, and I think and I completely understand why you would want to because you know in, in a zero interest environment with tiny sums of money to invest you want to take big swings you want asymmetric upside because you know that like not very much money at no interest doesn't amount to very much unless you're talking about 50 or 60 years of compounding, which is, is very hard to conceptualize. Um, so what we sort of feel that we're, that, that's a, the, the fight that we're, we're in is, just, is to try and remind people that, although of course it's attractive to essentially gamble and sort of hope for the, the moonshot to come off, um, generally it's not the right thing. So we, I guess we're, I think what we're, we're close to the Bogleheads. Have you ever heard of the Bogleheads? There is a community of 70,000 chapter members in the US who meet in St. Louis and just talk about how great John Bogle was. And, it, and it's all the same things. It's long time, long term, uh, stay and hold, diversification, save more than you earn. Um, and and we, we think exactly the same thing. So we don't, we would never offer stop picking or crypto. Like we're just stick it in an index fund, with an ETF, make sure you've got the right tax wrapper and just save every day for the whole of your life. Awesome. Well, 
We're going to have to take a quick pause here, but when we come back, we're going to have a look ahead and think about the future and how this industry might need to adapt and change to kind of serve the needs of this generational shift to come. So don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Fintech Insider Insights, where we are looking at the great wealth transfer and the evolution of the wealth management landscape more broadly. So what do we think the future holds in this space what do what do the wealth management companies of the near and further future need to do in order to be relevant to this this new generation of of millennials receiving wealth Antoinette what do you think well first they need to accept it there was a show many years ago and the baby boomers if anybody boomers are watching this it was a show called mash on television and it was about, you know, the war. And I remember this this line, and of course, I'm dating myself. I'm 58 years old, right? So I remember there was one guy who plays like a judge character. And he said, I make a motion that everybody accept reality. So we need to make a motion. Wall Street needs to make a motion, uh, or we need to make the motion that Wall Street accepts reality. That regardless of what you see in politics right now, most of the wealth that's going to be transferred will be transferred to the very people you're saying that are whiny or that you you don't want to serve because you're threatened by their place at the table. Women, people of color, and specifically educated young people are going to not just be inheriting the wealth, but they are going to be earning the wealth too. So I think it, for, for the future, Wall Street needs to look at a couple things. Number one is obviously digital technology, right? That, that digital first tends to be a thing. We have a lot of protection in the legacy systems, in the banking system. The other part of it is Wall Street is really slow to move. Like what's happened with the crypto market and now we just, you know, launched this a Bitcoin ETF, Daniel, that you're probably familiar with because you mentioned ETFs earlier, right? So Younger people are going to have their eyes a little bit more open to new investment vehicles, to hedge fund, to private equity. And Wall Street has to get on board that these are not, these kids are going to consider the financial advisors, their grandparents and their parents' financial advisors, that they don't necessarily speak to them. And that their their lens, because they've grown up during 9-11 and Ukraine and, and, and I'm not going to even name these political people, but they've grown under upper a lot of crazy, crazy politics going on. So they have a certain level of uncertainty and a fear that the baby boomers who are like, let the good times roll people do not. So I think that wealth management firms have to get into the psychology of understanding the mindset of, and quite frankly, put some young people on their teams, put people of color on their teams, put women on their teams, because it's very difficult for you to talk to a widow if you're not a woman. I'm sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I suppose you've touched on, I suppose, the, the, the staff and the people element. You've you touched on like the need for digital. How how do you kind of see this shift impacting like the the products and the services that these types of organizations will, will need to offer and how they offer those? Well, I mean, it, it's it's my daughter. When I said to her, I was doing a presentation right after the, um, when we f- started coming out of the cobwebs of, um, the pandemic and we did a live presentation which was a big deal you know two years ago and the the panel was on uh, cryptocurrency and DeFi, decentralized finance and it was a private equity family office and again this is the big money so i said to my daughter who was 16 at the time and i said hey sophia's her name she won't mind me saying it i think um i said sophia 
Do you, I'm going to be speaking on this panel, and I happen to know more than most of the people on the panel about cryptocurrency because I educated myself on it. I'm, I tend to be an early adopter. And I asked her, I said, do you know what cryptocurrency is? And she looked at me like I had three heads. She goes, well, of course I know what cryptocurrency is, mom. And she shows me her phone and, you know, the tokens and the different games that they play. But she says, look, in physics class at school, we talk about it. And we talk about how wasteful it can be and the date, you know, the, the mining and, you know, all the resources that are used. And my brain's thinking, but she looked at me like, like I was just 3,000 years old. So there's that. <laughs> Dana, do you think we'll see like the existing wealth management firms adapt and evolve this new reality? Or is this where only kind of new entrants are going to win? So I, I guess I maybe wrongly sort of split the world in two. So just there's balances that are large enough where the commission is going to pay a, an advisor salary. Um, so I don't know where that line is precisely. And then there's there's everybody else, you know, who at the moment is using savings accounts and Robinhood or whatever else, you know, the, if you like that. Well, what I think of as the, the pure civilians. And the, and the thing that strikes me, so I've spent maybe, oh God, I'm going to date myself, like 15, 20 years now building fintech products. Uh, this is my third round and investing in fintech products. And it seemed, I've got to say, it seemed incredibly simple to me along the way. It was just like, right, we're just, as, you, as Antoinette said, we're just going to digitize. We're going to take out the friction. We're going to take out the unnecessary costs. We're going to take out the paperwork. We're going to take out the obfuscation around price. And we're just going to make democratize access, make it free. And so we did. And actually, if you, I think if you look across the piece, at, you know, current accounts, mortgages, international money transfer, buying stocks, all of that stuff, like you know, a complete, you know, like Cambrian explosion of, of kind of utility has occurred. Um, led by engineers and, and you know, and, and MBAs, like sensible people who know how to run a spreadsheet and want to build a better, faster, and potentially freer thing. And I think that's the thing that really hit me over the last few years was that, that for all of that increased utility and access to good information, you know, like I, can, I, I used to be very sniffy about, you know, YouTube financial advisors. There's, some of that stuff is really good. Like, mo, mo, like there's a lot of really bad stuff, but like every now and then, you know, you look at the guys who've got several million followers and you're like, this is all really sensible, you know, sensible stuff. So why is, aren't things better? You know, so if we've got good utility, free access to all the tools, and really, really good advice, uh, sorry, let's say good advice, good generalized advice for, for the masses uh, available, then why does everyone seem so upset about money and so anxious? And this, this is why, and I'm not just talking my own book at Communion here, but this is, this is why I think this, and it's really that inter intersection of like, forcing people to, or asking people, I should say, to look inwards and to try and examine their own relationship with money. And there's, there's a bunch of good research that most people's attitudes to money are crystallized before the age of seven years old. So in that affluent family where, you know, they were in the Caribbean having that holiday, like that becomes the definition of happiness. Or if it's, you know, I grew up in a quite a lefty, like working class family, like money was seen as like vulgar, like an ugly thing, like and rich people were obviously bad people, like off the bat. So that stuff stays with you in whatever form, even and even as you become aware, with it, aware of it, you still have to kind of unpick it. So I think a lot about sort of the the intersection of the the internal experience of money and what that means for the future. And, and exactly as Antoinette says, like, you know, the, the sort of broader societal implications of, you know, this is, you know, Bitcoin's cool, but like it's also like filling the atmosphere uh, with a 
with greenhouse gases. And actually, like, you know, even if, even if I get a Lambo, like, I don't want the Lambo if I'm going to destroy the world getting it. So I think, I think those two things are just a real, a real sea change. And I think, I, I guess the, the point I'm trying to make is utility is not going to be enough. Like, comprehension of the implications for the self and the implications for the broader world are going to have to find their way into these apps, which traditionally have just been, like, faster, better, freer buttons to do a thing that you, could, you used to be able to do over the phone with somebody filling in a piece of paper. Um, and I think, I think I find that fascinating and very exciting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you put your sort of mistake Meg hat on, what do you think that will mean the apps of the future need to look like then? If they're following that kind of line of thought and following that through, like what, what are the types of services or experiences that you think the next generation of, of wealth receivers will want to have access to? Well, they might look a bit like communion. I just, you know... <laughs> used to say. <laughs> and no, I, you know, joking aside, no, I think the core is, is like, you know, the old traditional fact find. So it's not just going to be like how much you earn, what have you got, what do you spend your next and why? Or, you know, or the, the and like even just things like goal setting, I think are super fascinating. Like that, that's, you know, my, and again, Antoinette knows so much more than I do, but a lot of like, are you trying to save for a house? Are you trying to, you know, retire early? I don't know if that stuff entirely works when you're 25. Like, I just think, again, like, projecting yourself into the future is so difficult and so abstract. And, like, anything that requires ongoing discipline, like, you're like, yes, I want to save $500 a month. And then inevitably, at the end, by the end of the second month, you've completely overestimated your ability to save. You fall off the wagon and then you're out. Um, and I think trying to find ways that are both realistic and, and, and I think this is really the most important thing, that fintech encourages people to be passive. It's like, let us take a direct debit for your account and we'll use a robo-advisor to invest it across, you know, a basket of different ETFs or we'll round up your change. But everything is always takes the agency away from the, the end user and says, like, trust us, we're going to, we'll, we'll deal with it and you just, you know, you'll pay us a little fee or whatever. And I think that's incredibly dangerous. Again, Antoinette said, I forget the phrase, but you'll learn to respect money. Was that what you said? Um, and if you, uh, you know, as you're growing up and if you don't, like, how do you learn to respect money when it's completely abstracted away from you and made totally passive? And I really, I think about that a lot. And one of the core things, again, forgive me talking about my own book, but a communion, we all save one pound a day. And the idea is to make it tangible and real and allow people to feel every day like a saver, because we believe that that fundamentally affects their sense of identity and allows them to change the better for the future. So that, that's just one example of, I guess, how we're trying to do it. But I can imagine, yeah, a, a lot of exciting stuff coming down the pipe. Antoinette, like what what would you like in if we were having this conversation in ten years' time, like what what would be the kind of tools or experiences that you would love you know, your daughter or your daughter's friends to have at their disposal to help them kind of grow their wealth in this new world? Well, one of the things we haven't mentioned, which is singularly the biggest thing that will affect not just wealth, but you know, climate change and healthcare is artificial intelligence. So you can build your own chatbot, right? Like I said, my daughter's at a university that has, you know, these rather famous STEM uh, graduates, and they are already working on quantum computing and all of these aspects. Well, this, that's going to be a very big driver of wealth. And it can also be, if you want to talk about, and Daniel mentioned it, and I think it is, the democratization of financial literacy is a really important thing. But if you're always worried about basics, right, so Maslow's hierarchy, it's hard for you to think that far out into the future when you can't afford a home, when you have uh, apartments, you know, the, uh, the apartment next door to me. It's a two-bedroom apartment. It starts at $8,000 per month, American dollars, right? So and young people live there, but I think the, co the companies <laughs> subsidize that. So in the future, I don't think it's going to be 10 years. I think this is moving so fast and that, the other part of it is a cultural part of it because, again, we're talking from two 
parts of the world that have historically had and controlled most of the wealth. They are going to be minting millionaires and billionaires in India, in China, in places that we don't, we haven't even thought about yet. And they are going to be controlling wealth because they will own the drivers of the wealth, the technology, the platforms. At some point, you're going to be agnostic and you're not going to care if you do business with Merrill Lynch or a financial advisor. You're just going to care about the bottom line aspect of it. And AI is going to be so insidiously good that you might not even realize you're not dealing with a human being. So that's my, my prediction is, you know, watch AI. Watch AI. Yeah, Dan, I feel like we've gone... We've done pretty well to go this far into the show without using the phrase AI. Like, yeah, is, sorry. <laughs> no, no, it is, it, it's, it is time. Like, I mean, how how big is that? Is that part of what you guys are, are thinking about? Like, how big a driver is this of, like, the future wealth growth space? So I think, I guess, maybe, again, forgive me for splitting things in two, but I think, like, someone's personal, like, the, the, uh, the sort of nuts and bolts of financial life are an optimization problem. Right, like there is like an optimal place for your money to be over this period and an optimal diversification. And that, like the math required to do that is not very complex and has always been in existence. So you've, you know, there's, there's a bunch of different pieces of software that will do, to do that for you. Um, just to hop back to my last place, Habito, we were mortgage advisors. So, you know, we were conducting thousands upon thousands of, of mortgage advice conversations. We automated every aspect of it. So the, which mortgage they should get, why they should get that mortgage, the application process, the whole thing. And we would present it via a chatbot and say, this is the one and this is why. And the conversion rate of people being off the, you know, proffered that mortgage to accepting it was terribly, terribly low. Um, and what we found out was essentially that people were not willing to make half a million pound financial decisions on their own on the internet. Even though they were happy for all of the calculations to be automated, for, for every aspect of the, the sort of the, the mechanism to work in that way, they wanted to know that there was human oversight and someone to make sure that like they weren't making a horrible decision that would cost them a lot over a long time. And so I want I sort of have a question for Antoinette in this because I, I you know we, we immediately you know communicate because we, we we take a lot of notes and we write a lot of a lot of stuff in our notion things. So we of course we fed it all into a chat GPT and then started asking the GPT questions about our own business and and how we should think about things and it was it's an incredible summarizing tool and we found it very useful but i still i guess in my heart i am a skeptic about whether people will make big financial decisions completely in the void with just an with just a sort of a probabilistic algorithm uh, rather than this sort of the false certainty of a human uh, with some experience what do you do you think people will let the the ai make the decisions for them no i think it's a tool but but to ignore it as a tool would be a mistake because of, as you know, you know, pattern recognition, Monte Carlo simulation, all of these things. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, Microsoft's Copilot. Mm -hmm. It just came out last week. It just was opened up to to the regular public, right? So I was working on my, I have, you know, as I said, that Million Dollar Academy for Financial Advisors. And in the past, it would have taken me, I don't know, months or weeks to build out a presentation. And now ChatGPT is built into it. GPT-4 is built into it. And I can say, I want a presentation about the following. But because I have a, a relatively sophisticated level of prompt engineering experience, because I've trained myself, I can make it really close to my voice. And I can say, here's samples of my writing. This is the way I talk. And please copy that. Now, how much time does that save? It's huge. And it's all based on financial matters. And 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 to the point that I was just talking about, about democratizing this, what, what AI 
AI does is it will democratize the ability to do a lot of what financial advisors do. Like I said, when I was raising my daughter as a single parent, I didn't have a lot of time, but I was an advisor at Merrill Lynch. So I wanted to teach her about the stock market. And what I used to do is I would go on YouTube and I would find these real simplified videos and then I would go and create a quiz off of the video. You don't have to do that anymore. You can go into a free teachable account right now, take the transcript of whatever, tell it to summarize it, tell up it, AI will create a quiz out of it, and you can give it to a kid, no matter where they are in the world. Or like, for example, a co-pilot. I created a stock market for a fifth grader, describe it like a fifth grader, and it did it in seconds. So it's a tool. And if you know how to use the tool, Yes, it will very much affect certain financial decisions because you will be better educated going in when you're talking to a financial advisor. Just like the internet, I mean, made a lot of fake doctors out there, right? You learned a lot on the internet. You're going to go tell your doctor, and doctor's like, what are you talking about, right? But you, but you can't deny. You cannot deny the ability to give people, put, put power back to the people so that Wall Street doesn't come up with these esoteric terms that nobody understands. Even that Bitcoin ETF. I'm literally doing a course right now called Bitcoin ETF for Dummies, right? Because even the financial advisors don't know how to explain it to people. But if we don't, if we don't do that and we don't democratize that, that language and we don't give people the ability and the tools to learn these things at a simple basis, then every charlatan's out there that can come up with a fancy term will confuse them, you know, that do a video on TikTok and, and, and take their money. So, yeah. Um, we're unfortunately coming towards the tail end of the show. So I suppose, you know, if our listeners are going to take one thing away about you, the importance of this great wealth transfer, what it means for them, you know, again, I appreciate it's probably quite hard ask given the broad range of things that we've covered in this conversation. But yeah, Antoinette, if, if someone was going to take one thing away from this conversation, like what is the most important thing that you think they need to be aware of or thinking about when it comes to this this great wealth transfer? You, you have to master every bit of financial literacy that you can get your hand on. Because A, as Daniel said, the, the, A, the, 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 the inheritance is not guaranteed. But even if you get it, look at what's happening with Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. Sometimes inheritance is not a good thing for someone. It can demotivate them. It can make them make decisions that they normally wouldn't make very, you know, like sudden wealth and lottery winners. So I think that the takeaway is, no matter your age out there, to really educate yourself. And again, this is where I think AI can be really quite helpful because you can now er learn at a really fast speed where in the past you used to have to rely on people that had, you know, like I'm an MBA, right? You had to rely on people like me or CFPs, et cetera. So I think that's the thing, financial literacy to be very proactive about your education, but then of course the human component to make sure you don't just trust the algorithm, right? For sure. And Dan, what about you? What what one thing would you encourage our listeners to go away and think about some more in their personal lives or their businesses? Can I have one and a half? My half is just like, don't like, most people listening maybe aren't going to be part of this. And so like, try not, like it's, uh, it's, it can be difficult not to, not to be resentful when you're hearing about how much money everyone else is going to make. So don't be disheartened. There are a million ways to like, without the benefit of sort of transgenerational wealth, uh, like to, to, to have that comfortable retirement and make some great choices. Um, so that's my half. But the main thing I think is, you know, again, similar to Antoinette's is the, like, it, it's not all about money. Um, and it's not uh, it's not all about necessarily understanding all of the complexities and vagaries of, of the financial world. Like it's about understanding yourself and your relationship with money, and putting yourself in a position where you can make a continuous stream of great decisions over your lifetime. That's so definitely to aim for. Well, 
that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you so much to both of you for joining me. Where can people find out more about you and, and, and the things you're working on, Dan? Um, I'm on the, the social things as at, at Daniel P. Hegarty. I'm not very good at the social media, but come come, come see me. Um, and more importantly, uh, if you go to the App Store, if you're on iOS and type in Communion, you can download the app and, uh, and you can hear from me every day, in fact, because you'll get two minutes of uh, money meditation from me every morning. Awesome. Antoinette, what about you? And for me, it's uh, they call me, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the New York Yankees, uh, uh, A-Rod is a big baseball player here, so they call me A-Rod is because of Antoinette Rodriguez. So the best thing to do to find me and where the, most of my articles are and uh, the, the podcasts and all of that I do is to go on to LinkedIn and type in Antoinette Rodriguez, and you can type in MarFi Advisors, M-A-R-F-I, and Mar- MarFi stands for Marketing for Financial Advisors, or you can type in Antoinette Rodriguez Finance, New York City, you'll be able to find me that way. And also you'll be able to find the initiatives that we have under what we call Chica Wealth Builders, which is financial literacy for women. Top stuff. Um, and you can find me on LinkedIn, Kate Moody on LinkedIn, or you can drop me an email, kate at learnafest.com. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, follow our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on social media. Just search for Alonafest or Fintech Insider or email podcast at Thanks very much. Goodbye.